All right. Well, First Timothy, uh, we're, we're in a series in First and Second Timothy. It's going to take us quite a long time to get through these because we're taking a real slow walk. Um, but I think there's just so much. I mean, we could take much bigger sections and fly through this pretty quickly. But I think just to be able to do some some real deep dive into the things that Paul addresses here is going to be really helpful for us. Um, the purpose of these two letters, they are different. They're written to the same person, by the same person, from Paul to Timothy. They were written several years apart from each other. Um, but the, the overarching uh, emphasis in both of them is the same. Uh, they do deal with some different nuance in that, but the overarching emphasis is on the faithfulness that Jesus has for us, which then leads us to faithfulness to him. Right, so we're, that's why we've got this little subtitle, Faithful Savior, Faithful Church. It's, um, it's what we're looking at. It's like, what does it mean to be a faithful church in light of a faithful Savior? And how does this play out? So, so we, we're about, this is our third week in here. So um, we, we're not super far. But what we've seen so far in this letter really amounts to what the problem is. Paul in 1 Timothy is laying out at the beginning of this letter, he just jumps right into the problem. And the problem uh, that we've seen already over the last two weeks is that the church and the church and its teaching have moved away from the gospel, the pure gospel of grace, and uh, have moved into a dangerous place of, of essentially works righteousness. They're not throwing Jesus out completely, but they're just saying, hey, we need to like have Jesus and we also need to work to, to make him happy with us. And that kind of mentality, that's kind of a simplification, but that's essentially what's going on. And for Paul, that's not just like a little thing. That is a huge problem because it's compromising the true gospel of grace and what, what that means. And what's interesting is that Paul doesn't start this letter by saying that the church in Ephesus has drifted from the gospel. He, didn't use that, he doesn't use that word. Drifting is, is something that is mentioned in other parts of the New Testament. Book of Hebrews talks about the, the need for us to watch out for drifting. And right, So drifting is a slow, gradual move. Right? If you're driving your car and you're drifting out of your lane, um, that's not a, a real sudden thing. It's just slowly, you're not paying attention and suddenly you're over the line. And sometimes you've got the rumble strips that remind you of that and you come, you course correct and you get back on the road. Um, that's not what Paul's saying here. The church in Ephesus that Timothy's helping to lead is not drifting from the gospel. He uses the word in verse six, certain persons by swerving from these, from these truths that, that Paul's going to articulate. The, he uses the word swerve. That's not a drift, right? That's a sudden, immediate move uh, away from the center. This was a terribly hard move away from the path that Jesus has set for this church. And so Paul's basically laid out the problem that these certain people in Ephesus are driving the church suddenly and and violently in some sense, uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, away from the gospel. And Paul says, I left you here, Timothy, to course correct, to get this church back to what they need to be about, which is the 
pure gospel that Jesus loves and saves sinners. So the, the main thing that we're looking at is basically Paul's laying out, okay, here's the problem. Now let's, let's fix it. And he's going to lay out for Timothy what that looks like and what a healthy, gospel-centered, faithful church looks like. Um, so that's Paul's main concern. That's why he's writing the letter. And, um, and basically all we've looked at so far is the problem. Right? We've, we haven't really seen the solution. But today we're going to start to get there. Because Paul, in a very, in very personal language, is going to lay out what the gospel actually is. Right? If we're going to be a gospel-centered church, we should probably know what the gospel is so that we know where the lines are. And if you're thinking of the, the lane that your car's in, right? you've got the lines that show you your lane, and we need to see that. Where is the gospel, and how do we stay centered on it? So he's going to give us that today, and I'm really excited because these, these verses are some of the best uh, in the New Testament on giving us this pure gospel of Jesus. And I, I know there's so many others, right? John 3.16, Romans 5.8. You can go on and on and on, uh, but this is just an amazing passage. So let's take a look at it. We're going to start in verse 12. 12 in the first half of 13. Uh, we'll look at together here. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. So, so Paul starts this next paragraph by saying, I'm thankful to Jesus. Why is he thankful? Because Jesus is his strength and has considered him, judged him, determined him faithful, and has given him a ministry, right? So Paul's kind of looking at his own life and he's saying, man, I, I am really thankful that Jesus gave me a ministry, the ministry of apostleship in his case. I think he's setting an example for all of us to be thankful for whatever service God calls us to. Every single one of us is a minister of some, in some way or another. The Bible is so clear on this. The church needs lots of parts and and pieces and people. And we, we, have, we all have a ministry. And every single one of us, regardless of what that role may be, uh, has been given that role by Jesus through his strength for his glory. And we should be thankful for that. Right? But what, what astounds Paul even more about, his, uh, about Jesus appointing him to service is Paul's past. And Paul reflects in the first half of 13 on this. Look at what he says. He says, though formerly in the past I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So, so here we're seeing Paul describe himself before Jesus met him, before Jesus got a hold of his heart. And, and he's saying, I, essentially he's saying, I don't deserve the strength and kindness of Jesus to give me a ministry because I was formerly at one time a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. So he's just giving us kind of a snapshot of his, of his life before Jesus and what he was like. And if, you've, if you know Paul's backstory and you know his, his conversion experience and all the things that happened in Acts chapter 9, just before that, we learned that Paul was not a... He was not a champion for the church. He was a persecutor of the church. 
He hated the church. In fact, he made it his life's mission to stamp out the church if he could, right? He was zealous against the church and he, that sent him on a journey uh, to oversee or essentially approve of the execution, the murder of Stephen, who was one of the first deacons of the church. And they killed him and Paul was approving of that. The Bible says that. The Bible says that Paul was breathing murderous threats against the church. He, he hated the church. He persecuted the church. He, he was an opponent and even was saved on the road to a city called Damascus. He was riding his horse to Damascus and he was going there for the purpose of, of arresting and persecuting Christians. And God stopped him on the road knocked him down, blinded him, and brought him to Christ. And that's where all this happens. And then right after Christ saves him, Jesus himself tells the apostles, hey, I'm going to send Paul to you, and you're going to help him, teach him, and, and do things with him. And they didn't believe Jesus that Paul was changed. <laughs> that's how bad Paul was. They were like, wait, Jesus, I think he's tricking you. <laughs> Jesus isn't going to get tricked, right? But they, they were like, this dude is bad news. He's going to kill us. And this is all a ruse, right? This is how Paul was. And he acknowledges that he doesn't deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve the ministry. And the fact is that we don't, we don't either, right? We're all, we may not have the same sins that Paul had in his life, but we all do have sins. And I think until we recognize that we really don't deserve any of this, we're not going to appreciate the good news that comes for us next. We need to be confronted with our, with our need and our sinfulness and our brokenness. And again, every one of us has a different story from everyone else, but all of us have fallen short. And that's what makes grace amazing. That's what makes grace a wonderful thing. And that's what makes the things that come next in this so great. So look at verse 14, uh, the end of verse 13, excuse me. He says, okay, so he was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. But despite that, he says, I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So mercy, he acknowledges, was given to him. He received it. Mercy is received. Mercy is not earned. Right? It's a gift. It's given by Jesus to us. If it, was, if it was something we earned and not something we received, it would be a paycheck. It would not be a gift. And so mercy is given. It's received. It's not for those who fix themselves, but it's a gift for those who truly are in the place that Paul was, ignorant and in unbelief. Paul's making the point that he didn't have anything within himself to deserve the mercy that Jesus gives him, but he received mercy. It was given to him. And then look at verse 14. I love this image. It says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I love that picture. The overflow of grace. Grace is overflowing for Paul. It's overflowing for you and me as well. That, that Picture this glass of water, right? Just picture the glass and you're pouring water in it and you just keep pouring and pouring and pouring. Eventually it gets to the top and then eventually as you keep pouring more water, it's just going to overflow, right? 
It's going to get all over you. It's going to get all over the, the floor. It's going to get all over everything. It's coming out of that cloud. That's how Paul pictures, images rather for us, grace. Grace is not this little drop of, okay, here's just something for you. Grace is not just this little thing that God offers us. It is an overflowing, glorious thing that God offers to sinners. And I love it because that's, that's what we worship Jesus for. We worship him for his grace that overflows. But then look at what he says next. What is overflowing? He actually tells us what overflows from this grace. It says overflowing for me, so that's personal, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So if we think of ourselves as an empty glass, we got nothing in us, and God pours his grace into us, what overflows as he continues to pour that grace, overflowing it out of, out of us, what comes out? Faith and love. Now here's the interesting thing. At least to me it's interesting. I don't know if it'll be interesting for you. But faith, I think for so many of us, we, we envision it this way, that God brings the grace and we bring the faith and we meet somewhere in the middle. And if our theology is a little better than that, maybe we, we meet a little bit less on the middle and God meets us a little bit more on our side. But we always envision faith as the thing that we bring and grace is the thing that God brings. But what Paul is saying here is not that. He's saying that we don't even have Faith. God gives us faith by grace. Faith pours out of us as God fills the cup that we, that, that we are empty of and overflows with that faith. We don't have faith, not without him. I think that's incredible because it puts salvation squarely and firmly in God's hands from start to finish. It's not that we meet God somewhere in the middle and we do our part, he does his part. God does all of it. And that's great news because that means that there is no part of salvation that we somehow get to pat ourselves on the back and, and pr pride ourselves in being able to figure it out. Faith and love, God gives us faith, God gives us love, in Jesus, right? He says, in Christ Jesus, these things are what overflow out of us and through us and with us as Jesus gives us grace. And this is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, in the, same, the letter that he wrote to this same church. He wrote a letter much earlier than 1 Timothy. He writes this amazing letter to the church in Ephesus. And in probably the most famous passage from that, that letter, we get to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? And it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. Okay, so that's where we can get confused and go, okay, well, so we've been saved by grace and that grace is through faith. But then he says this, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
what does this refer to? It, re- it refers to all of it. We think that this refers just to the grace, but Paul's using the word this to refer, and this becomes clearer as you get into the, the original language. It doesn't come as clearly in English, but this is what he's saying. This is the grace and the faith that comes to us so that this salvation is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So no one may boast. We don't get to brag. We don't get to brag about our salvation. Why? Because Jesus is the one who gives it all to us. All of it. Mercy is received. Grace is given and overflows. What overflows from us is the faith and love in Christ Jesus. So the question then is, okay, if we don't bring the faith and we don't bring the grace and we don't bring the anything, what do we bring? This is good news for you guys. We, what we bring is our sin. That's it. And that's great because that's all we have. So let's, let's bring it boldly to Jesus and have him take it from us and forgive us. We bring our junk and Jesus brings everything else. That's good news. So, so he's leading us in this journey of understanding how salvation works of what should be preached in the church, of what the true gospel really is. And it's not a gospel of works. It's a gospel of pure grace, all from Jesus. Doesn't have anything to do with us at the end of the day. But as God meets us with grace, we respond and trust and believe in him because he gives us the ability to do that. Now let's look at verse 15 because here is probably the most amazing, succinct verse in the, in the New Testament on the, on the gospel and what it is. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. So what he's saying is, is important. He's saying this is the truth. It's not just a truth. It is absolutely true. We have to fully, completely accept this truth. So, so gear up. What, are we, what do we have to believe? What is the most important thing Paul can explain to us? Look at the next phrase, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul's saying, I'm the worst sinner. In case you, you don't want to be in a competition with Paul, maybe, maybe you do. Maybe you think you are. Here's the thing. I think that's, that's not Paul like, I don't think Paul's making an absolute claim there. I think Paul is just expressing what every Christian should express that I am way worse than you. You may think you're way worse than me, and if you do, that's good. You're on, you're on the right path. Where we shouldn't be is, okay, yeah, you win for being worse sinner. Like, that's where we shouldn't be, right? We need to look at ourselves and go, I, this is what makes grace amazing, is that I know how bad I am, and I know how sinful I am, and I know how deep my sin goes, and I know how wicked I am. You may not see that, 
but I know it, and I may not see it in you, but you know it. And Paul knows it. And Paul's saying, I'm the worst, and yet Jesus came into the world to save me, the worst sinner. And you can say that about you, and I can say that about me, that we are the worst sinners that Jesus came to save. We are on very dangerous ground when we start to go, okay, Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and those are those sinners over there, somewhere else, not me. We need to personalize this and go, this is the problem. I'm a sinner, but the good news is that Jesus came to save me. Now, I think Paul does an amazing thing with this word. He uses the word sinner, and it's an extremely broad word. It's not specific, and it's not supposed to be. Charles Spurgeon says of this verse that Christ came into the world to save sinners of all sorts. He says, so long as you come in under the general description sinners, it doesn't matter what, what shape your sin has taken. All men have sinned, and yet all have, found, have not sinned in the same way. We have all wandered the downward road, and each of us has gone a different direction from the rest. Then he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save respectable sinners and sinners of disrepute. He came into the world to save proud sinners and despairing sinners. He came into the world to save drunkards and thieves and liars and adulterers and murderers and all the like. Whatever sort of sin there is, this word is wonderfully comprehensive and sweeping. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This, this verse is the best news you're going to hear all day, all week, all year, for all your life. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I know that some of you may push back on that and go, I don't know that I'm that bad. I'm certainly not as bad as them. Well, Christ came to save you. You're a proud sinner. And some of you have no problem whatsoever believing that you're a horrible sinner. And here's the good news. Christ Jesus came to save you. No matter what you've done, you turn to Jesus and he forgives you and saves you and brings you to him. This is the good news of the gospel. I think we just, we need to sit in this and, and think about this, but, but I mean, we could spend all day on it. We just have to continue to move on, though, at some point. So let's, let's look at verse 16. I think this is amazing. It just keeps getting better. Like, that's where I'm, I'm at with this. All week I've been working on this and going, it just gets better. Every time, every verse you read, it gets better. It's so good. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason. Okay, stop there for a second. Think about what he's saying. He's going to tell us something that probably all of us want to, to know the answer to. Why would Jesus save sinners? Like, why? why? I look at my life and I go, what do I have to offer Jesus? Nothing, right? So why would he save me? Why would he bring me into this thing called salvation and ultimately into the church and Unite me to Jesus. Why would he do this? And Paul is going to tell us why. I love it. The Bible doesn't leave us wondering. 
I received mercy for this reason. Now, Paul's speaking obviously in a personal way. He says, I received mercy. But he's not exclusively talking just about himself. He's talking personally, but this is universally true for all Christians. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. You guys see, see something amazing here? Why did Paul get mercy? Why did you get mercy? The answer is because Jesus wants to display his perfect patience. He wants to show off. That's what it means to display, right? When Christmas rolls around and you guys all put up your Christmas displays, what are you doing? You're showing off for a good reason, holiday cheer and all that junk, right? But... But listen, you all want to show off. Like you, you want to get the biggest tree and all the things. You do this not in, a, not in a bad way, right? There's good ways to show off and there's bad ways to show off. It's not all bad to show off. So Jesus is obviously not sinning as he shows off, but he wants to display, show himself to be incredibly, in fact, perfectly patient with us. That's unreal. Like, I don't think if I was to try to think up a reason for Jesus to save me, I don't think this would ever make the list. But Jesus saved you to show you his patience. So, that's amazing. And in fact, when we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, same passage we just read a little bit out of, if we step back just a verse from where we started there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. Paul gives us a similar reason, but a slightly different word for why Jesus would save us. So in verse 1 to 6, Paul's explaining that salvation comes to, to dead sinners through the mercy of God, by his love, all these things. He's just articulating the gospel. And then verse seven, he says, so that. Okay, so why did Jesus save us? So that, Paul says here, in the coming ages, he might show, so there's that word again, display, show, put in front of us, the immeasurable, immeasurable, can't measure it, riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why does Paul, so in Ephesians chapter two, Paul says the reason Jesus saves us is so that God can show, display, put on full display his perfect kindness. Here, his perfect patience. These things are all intricately connected. They're, They're one and the same. Kindness leads to patience and all the rest, right? This is, this is how God decides to show how amazing he is by saving sinners and showing us how patient he is with us. This is good news for you, and let me explain why. Because you you are probably looking at your own life, if you're being honest, if you're being real with yourself, you probably look at your own life and go, man, I am a real screw-up. And I keep messing up. And I actually keep doing the same 
dumb things I did yesterday. I'm still just as mean. I'm still, I still get mad at that person or this person. I'm still so impatient. I'm still whatever, right? We look at our lives and we go, why do I keep doing the same things over and over again? God must be so sick of me. No, he's not. No matter how many times you come to Jesus with the same confession of sin, he is never sick of hearing from you. No matter how many times you come to him with the same prayers and struggles and doubts and fears and all the things, he's not sick of you. He doesn't push you away. He doesn't go, okay, I just, I need a break from you guys. You're obnoxious. He doesn't do that because he's perfectly patient. We have patience through the Spirit of God. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. But our patience is not perfect patience, even on the best of days. But Jesus shows his perfect patience to us. So he never wants to see us go away. He never gets tired of us coming to him for help. That is good news for us. We get mercy because Jesus wants to show his patience to us. Now, let's keep reading, though, because something else is said here, and I think this is really amazing. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. Now, look at the next three words. As an example. To who? To those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So this is amazing because we can talk all day about how patient Jesus is with us, and he is, and, and we, we should talk about that. That's a, that's a worthy conversation to have. But, but fundamentally, Paul is saying that God's patience with us in Jesus is for us to see as an example for those who would trust in him. So this is where the rubber meets the road. This is, where the, this is where the faithfulness of the church in light of the faithfulness of our Savior starts to overlap. This is what we say here. I've said this a thousand times. You're sick of hearing it, but gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture, right? Right? You've heard me say that, unless you're new. Maybe you haven't. That's the first time. You'll hear it a thousand more times. Gospel doctrine, what Jesus does for us in the gospel, leads to gospel culture, meaning how we actually live with one another in the church, in the context of community. And this is another example of a billion examples you see in the scriptures, because you see it everywhere once you see it, that he literally says that the patience of Jesus is set for us as an example to do what? To to live out patience with each other. So the patience that we get from Jesus should lead us to patience that we have with each other. And here's why that's good news as well. Because in the church, in this kind of a context, when you're with other people, you are going to be surrounded by people who are not perfect Christians, no matter how hard they may try. And they're going to do things that frustrate you and bother you 
and are, are just downright wrong at times. But what's our response in light of what Jesus does for us? Is our response to push those obnoxious people away? And to go, you know what, this church isn't really for you. This isn't really a starter church. Maybe you should come back when you've cleaned yourself up. Here's the thing. Every church should be a starter church. Every ch- if it's not, it's not a faithful church. Every church should be a, a gathering of people who are from all different places and maturity levels, and we are patient with each other. We work through discipleship together. We're in life together in this thing called the church. And this is, this is how Jesus models it for us. He shows us his perfect patience as an example for us who believe that we might be patient with each other. That's a gospel culture in the church. So here, here's the deal. How does this relate to us being a more faithful church? because that's the whole thing. That's what we're looking at. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he's patient with us, how does this help us? Well, I think this is where we have to get our minds to. That impatience, the, the being impatient with each other is not just a bad thing. It should be in our minds an unthinkable thing in the context of the church. Impatience is not just a bad thing. It should be an unthinkable thing in this place. We should have nothing but patience for each other. Even as you guys deal with the same things over and over again, and as I deal with my same sins over and over again, we work through these things together patiently, knowing Jesus is patient and working through us. Patience is a marker of a faithful church because it's rooted in the gospel. All right, verse 17, last one we're looking at real quick. Paul says, this is kind of like completely out of left field, okay? To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He just like out of the blue, out of nowhere goes, isn't God awesome? Like look at what God has done for us in Jesus. Look at how he's accomplished salvation for sinners. Look at, and, and Paul has no choice, it seems, than to just break out in worship right here in the middle of a paragraph, in the middle, not even at the end of the book. Like he usually does these things at the end of his letters, right? He's just like in the first chapter and he's breaking out into a, into a song of praise, essentially, to who God is, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. The gospel has to lead us into worship. Paul breaks out in praise. And that's what we should do too. Because the gospel produces praise in our hearts when we really know that we are sinners undeserving of God's love and yet we are recipients of God's love even as sinners, what other choice do we have than to sing and praise and worship? That's the response of the human heart as we see Jesus for all he is. So we're going to do that.
We're going to respond like we do every week this way, and we'll sing. We'll sing. We'll take communion. We'll partake of the reminders we need of the gospel. And as we do that, let me pray for us, and we'll get ready to go from there. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have loved sinners like me. Thank you that you came into this world to save sinners like me. And I pray that our our hearts would just be drawn into worship even now as we've seen you for the gracious and merciful and patient God that you are. Would you give us hearts that sing in joy to you? Would you give us hearts of praise? And we pray that we would meet you in this time and just have more of you uh, reinforced as we sing words and partake of the Lord's table together. And we pray that you would do all these things for us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.